Hello, I'm Renee Vaughan Sutherland and welcome to Greater Than 11%. If this is the first time you're tuning in, a quick overview. This podcast is all about creative roles and opportunities and born out of the statistic I heard at the Creative Equals Create Your Future event in May 2018, which was that only 11% of women are creative directors within the media industry. As an artist and creative director myself, I felt compelled to take action to do something that pushes that percentage a lot higher. It occurred to me when thinking about what that action could be is that there's a lot of careers that I have absolutely no idea what they are and what skills they require. So the possibility to inhabit or inspire to have those roles can never eventuate. And that is even before entering the battleground of opportunity. As I'm super interested in how others shape their creativity, I'll be chatting to a range of women over the series, exploring their careers and their creative lives in the aim to expand the knowledge of the vast number of options available for pursuing a creative career, in addition to shedding some light on what others do. For episode 8, I'm joined by documentary, film and opera director Penny Woolcock. We recorded the podcast on a gorgeous autumnal day in Penny's home, owing to her very tight schedule at present. It does mean you may hear the occasional carol scooter, and you will definitely hear a very industrious leaf blower from time to time. Penny has a long list of accolades, and to say I'm a fan is an understatement. Having made her first short film as a result of enrolling in a two-day filmmaking workshop and borrowing equipment, this led on to her making documentary films. In 1999, she made a feature film, Tina Goes Shopping, which is about a woman, Tina, negotiating life and surviving on a tough and deprived council estate. Penny cast a group of non-actors in the Leeds area to play in the film, and she subsequently made another two films, Tina Takes a Break and Mischief Night, now dubbed the Tina Trilogy. In 2009, she wrote and directed One Day, a film that follows a gang member trying to find the money to pay his boss that will save his life. For one day, Penny researched extensively, working with local gangs in Birmingham, and as a result, followed the film with a documentary titled One Mile Away. Penny also directs opera. She directed John Adams' Dr. Atomic for New York's Metropolitan Opera, and in 2016, she directed a production of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion for Streetwise, predominantly performed by homeless people, which aired on BBC Four, and recently directed Ackley Bridge, a fictionalised series that follows the merger of two schools in a segregated British and Pakistani community in Yorkshire for Channel 4. She is also an artist, having shown her work at a number of galleries and is currently preparing for a solo show at Modern Art Oxford titled Fantastic Cities, opening on the 16th of November. She has won numerous awards for her work. The Liberty Human Rights Award, a Grammy, the Michael Powell Award, two Royal Television Society Awards and the Women in Film and TV Award for Achievement of the Year in 2013. It is fair to say that I've only hopped, skipped and jumped over many of Penny's talents and incredible work and I'm very much looking forward to discussing her career in more detail. Penny, welcome to Greater Than 11%. Hello, I'm very happy to be here. Penny, when I was doing my research into all the amazing things you've done, I've been absolutely astounded and really inspired. And I will say that it was Anna Veldas-Hanks that recommended me to come and talk to you. So that's fantastic. You're the first guest that's been followed up by a recommendation. Because you've got a vast array of talents, I'm wondering if we can first kick off and if you could tell me what you do as a filmmaker and director. Well, um, as a director, you're kind of choosing the way that you're going to tell a story. So, And that would be true in documentary and in fiction. So if, for example, I made a film called On the Streets, I was interested in making something about homeless people because 
you know, you, the people that you step over, you feel a bit ashamed, embarrassed, you wish they weren't there, you don't know whether to give money and you can't give money to everybody, you know. And I somehow thought if I got very close, I would understand something. So obviously there are lots of different ways in which you could make that film, but what I decided to do was to do it with a tiny crew. So there was me and an assistant, and I did the sound and my assistant shot the film. Sometimes I do the camera work and I get someone else to do the sound. And we spent eight months on the streets of London um, following people who I'd connected with. And so that that decision to spend that amount of time doing something and not, for example, to be interviewing any of the homeless charities. So it was really just giving voice to people on the street. So those were the decisions that I made that informed the kind of film it is. It's an observational film, so I was following certain people who were going in and out of accommodation. And they were the people who I connected with and liked and who liked me and were happy to open up. Um, and obviously there are lots of different ways that you could make that, but that, that was the way that I chose to, to make that film. Um, with fiction, I think my fiction directing is very much informed by documentary so you could be the kind of director who likes to stay back who likes to frame shots very very carefully doesn't like to move the camera and and films like that are very very beautiful I mean the ten I tend to do it quite differently you know I'm very interested in performance so I like to follow the actors rather than tell them stand here then stand there and let that little light kick off in the corner of your eye you know so I like a kind of quite a restless camera so I, I suppose in each case you kind of set a style and a way of doing things that kind of feeds into what the piece will be like. So if you're the two kind of different styles that you talked about there if you're thinking about making them kind of where does that start where's the genesis of those ideas like and also how do you when you talked about going out and meeting people on the street and talking to them how do you develop those relationships to then turn them into this narrative and this either documentary or fiction piece yeah I mean for me it's kind of all about not all about but the people at the centre of it whether it's the actors or the contributors in a documentary um are at the heart of it and so what I want to do is for them to be able to be the the, the best version of themselves that they can be and so make people feel very comfortable and the only way I know how to do that is by really connecting so the connections are real to me as well you know I don't sort of I'm still in touch with Jean who is the the main person in on the streets nine years later mm -hmm. I mean she's still very troubled mm -hmm. you know but we're we're still connected mm -hmm. so I guess I find the c connection and it's yeah it's not easy because at first you're wandering around and I'm actually quite a shy person and I have to kind of break down that sense because you do get rejected a lot you know um and sort of we, well, what we did in that case was we sort of wandered around the streets for a week thinking, I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm just walking around, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's always that kind of terror, actually, mm -hmm. at, the, at the beginning. 
And then we sort of discovered where the points were where people congregated to get food. And so that was the place in which we knew we'd be able to meet people. And then some people would be angry and say, who do you think you are? You're coming here, exploiting us, making money, whatever. And other people would be interested to talk you know and so those are the people who you kind of follow up with so it's it's um I mean I guess the way I do it is I very much put myself on the line and I'm not pretending to be anybody other than I am you know with the Tina films that you mentioned or the the, the gang films in Birmingham I'm not pretending that I'm from that background I don't change the way I speak or anything like that you know I'm just as uh, myself as much as I can possibly be and I'm always very honest about what I'm doing you kind of alluded to it in that you're about performance and it just struck me when you were talking then that actually your style of directing your kind of position as director both in you know filmmaking and documentary making is about people and performance as opposed to it's about the story as opposed to like saying make these beautiful shots and yeah I'm curious to how that kind of those elements of people plus their stories real or a version of real drives you as the director because you're thinking about one thing not necessarily one thing in terms of the story not necessarily the look and visual feel that must be secondary say again with either fiction or documentary you can there's a style where say you have a lot of talking heads and somebody just sits there and you ask some questions and they tell you a story or you know you have these rig shows now where they basically put lots of cameras around somebody's house and then they film everywhere apart from the toilet you know and somehow that is meant to be telling you something you know and so people in those films in a sense lose themselves completely because the whole thing is a performance Mm -hmm. you know so um or in soaps you know that where you have two cameras so all of these are decisions that you make. Once you've got two cameras, you can't really move the camera that much because the other camera gets to be in shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it compromises the lighting as well. You know, So a lot of TV drama is two camera. Mm-hmm. I, I always use a single camera, which is much more a cinematic technique, actually. So unless I'm doing a, um, a stunt, I'm always with one camera so the camera can move. And so you 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 light for for that for that sequence mm-hmm. uh, rather than trying to keep the lights out of the other camera that's in shot, you know. So soaps tend to be, for example, multi-camera shoots, and they're all front lit. So you get this actually, I think, quite unpleasant look where people look <laughs> really sort of flat. Mm-hmm. And I would hate to do that, and it would upset me a lot, you know. So the, 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 it does matter to me how something looks very much. And, and actually, at the beginning, with fiction, when I'm working with a director of photography, we often, we watch films together and we decide kind of what sort of look we're going for. But I guess one of the things that, that I generally do is to, I like the camera to be very to be restless and mobile and and so I'll choose DOPs who are happy with that you know who who can accommodate that and who can light to it so in in fiction I mean it, it was almost like a, a different job in a way you've got tons of people 
and you're kind of it's, it's like a, a sort of pyramid but within that pyramid there are lots of little pyramids and so I would work primarily with the director of photography with the set designer and the costume designer where we're thinking about what kind of look we want mm -hmm. and um, so for example with Ackley Bridge which is on channel four at eight o'clock and it's primarily aimed at quite young teenagers but it has quite a broad demographic mm -hmm. appeal you know we didn't want it to be grim you know because mm -hmm. it's set up north it's bloody freezing <laughs> in quite a poor community yeah. and you could could say oh gosh you know this is going to be kitchen sink but actually what we wanted was for it to look the way it feels and that was true with this Tina films as well people are actually really funny you know and they're surviving mm -hmm. under quite difficult circumstances and dealing with it and in Ackley Bridge you have um, you know about half the cast are from the Pakistani community so obviously you have you know different skin tones to to deal with and you want to make sure that somehow you're doing it justice and that that people will find this world inviting that's mm. what we wanted we didn't want it to be alienating i guess the role of the director specifically and you kind of i mean that what's such a great analogy is this pyramid and mm. there's lots of little pyramids within that because the director let's say in fiction or on tv series um or in films you know they've got this huge umbrella that they're overseeing but then i guess that's a lot different to documentary which you switch between as well quite frequently yeah so with documentary there's usually it used to be years ago that you would have a crew and we would shoot on film well that just doesn't happen anymore you know so it te you tend to use quite little cameras and some people go off on their own but I don't like to do that I like to have uh, one other person with me partly because the sound is very difficult to deal with by yourself because you're a bit stuck with either a radio mic or the on-camera microphone you know which means that when it's not pointing at the person who's speaking they're off mic and but I, there's a lot of problems with that and also because it's quite lonely actually so it's nice to have somebody there when somebody has you know tried to suggest they're going to smash the camera on your head or nobody wants to speak to you or people don't turn up because of course if they don't want to turn up they don't you know you're not paying them yeah. so it's very very different to fiction so at least you've got somebody to hang out with you know so I, I always like um, being with someone else but um but at the same time, all of the onus is on you then. And also you actually have people's lives in your hand. And so the kind of ethical quagmire of that is something that's almost unbearable. I don't know that I can do it again, actually, because mm -hmm. I find it so painful and difficult. Um, with fiction, you've got you know, a lot of people and they all have their own jobs. And although that could seem quite daunting, you know, you sometimes it's anything between, I don't know, 50 and 100 people you can have or more, you know, when I'm doing opera, sometimes it's like 200 people backstage doing things. But of course, you're not individually telling each of those people what to do or, or making it clear what you'd like them to do. Because inside that, there's a little pyramid. So, you know, our director of photography and I will discuss what we want to do. And then um, she or he will then deal with the lighting people to tell them where to put the lights in order to like what we've decided and the the sound people as well will realize you know what the 
the kind of difficulties are sometimes they might have to lay some carpet because there's sort of very clacky floor or whatever it is and the actors will then go off to get you know their makeup adjusted or their to Mm -hmm. put their costumes on or whatever it is you know so you have to know enough about each of the departments to be clear about what it is that you want people Mm -hmm. to do because I had made one film and I was then invited to teach at a film school so it's a little bit blind leading the blind because I'd only ever made one film (laughs) and I'd done that without knowing anything Um, and so I supervised a few groups of students making films and it was very very interesting because the most popular directors and the 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 little crews that worked the best and made the best films were where the director was very clear about what they wanted and polite to people Mm -hmm. not not a bully Mm -hmm. but very clear Curiously, the second most functional were where you had some fascist bastard who was a bully, mm-hmm. but who was very clear about what, what they wanted people to do. And the disasters were where at the centre of it, there was somebody who waffled, who didn't know, and then nobody knew what they were supposed to do. And then you get this culture of everybody's moaning and backbiting, and it was terrible. And so one of the things is I think you do need to be clear, because that makes people feel confident Mm -hmm. that they can do their job really well so yeah i guess being very very clear about your vision even if you need to change that yes yeah yeah okay so penny can you talk a little bit about your method or your approach of using people from the community or non-actors in your films and tv series I, I don't really make a distinction between actors and non-actors. There's actors who haven't done it before mm. because it, there is a gift. And uh, I, for example, if somebody tells me they want to film me walking across the room, we'll start doing crazy pretend walking because I'll be self-conscious. Mm-hmm. So some people can do it and some people can't. And I guess the reason that I often, but not always, mm-hmm. you know, will will give parts to people who haven't done it before is if I think they're going to be better than anybody else mm-hmm. at doing it. But also, for example, with One Day, I went and, you know, I was asking the same questions that the police were asking about a criminal lives, you know. Mm-hmm. And initially, a lot of people thought I was working for the police and that I was trying to trick them into thinking that I was making a film and I wasn't. So people trusted me to tell me things and I wanted to give something in return. So I said, I will come back and I'll cast it mm-hmm. from from the community. So it was a way of that I felt of being fair to people, but also because I thought they would be much better mm-hmm. at performing their own lives than people who don't know anything about it. So, for example, in Tina Goes Shopping, there's a woman who playing a part of a woman who has about eight children. And most actors who've been to RADA don't look like they've had eight children and they've got all their own teeth, you know. So actually, um, Gwen was much better at playing that part because that, that's actually who she, who she is. Uh-huh. So it's partly because I think it's better and partly because, you know, it's, it is... And it's become increasingly like that with cutting grants and so on to drama schools that 
all of these people who get these parts have all been to Oxford or Cambridge come from very privileged backgrounds. And so how do we actually broaden, you know, and include people from... Because class as much as race, actually, there are very, very few people from working class backgrounds who, who get to be actors or get to do anything in mm. TV. So the only way to actually break down those barriers is to actually do it if you've got the power to... To choose, so I I will always fight for that. But I won't fight for somebody who I think can't do it because that's not fair on them or anybody else, you know. But I think the only way to change things is actually to to change them, you know, not just sit around having stupid conferences about diversity, which are just hot air, really. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about opera? I know very little yeah. about opera, so uh, yeah. yeah. what's that process I mean you know people sort of wonder how I get to do all these things but really kind of one thing leads to another it's really odd so I love music Mm -hmm. and and actually the two kinds of music I'm most sort of passionate about I really like grime and I really like opera and classical music and they're narrative forms of course so there's a real connection so I had made a film of the death of Klinghoffer which uh, John Adams is a contemporary American composer very wonderful actually mm-hmm. and um, I had gone to a performance a concert performance of the death of Klinghoffer which is based on a real event where some Palestinians um, hijacked a ship and in by mistake they were just caught in the cabin cleaning their guns and then suddenly they you know it was, the whole thing was a kind of cock up mm-hmm. really And then in the course of this hijack, which nobody wanted to take responsibility for, they shot and killed an elderly American Jew in a wheelchair and threw him overboard. And the opera attempts to kind of understand how something like that can happen. And it's a very, very humane and wonderful piece of work. Um, And so for some reason, it sort of entered my head that I could make a film of mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know that I didn't know anything you know I didn't know how to read oh, I still don't know how to read music um, but I suggested this and someone at Channel 4 thought it was a good idea and then John Adams thought it was a good idea and suddenly I was I had to do it and I was thinking oh my god <laughs> how do I do this but if you don't know things you just need to surround yourself with the right people who do know the things. So I know how to direct a film. I knew how to visually do how to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had the conductor and the people who could advise me musically. So we would shoot a scene, which we did by... I trained the opera singers, went to an army place, and they, they could strip a Kalashnikov in 30 seconds, you know, because I didn't want them walking around like that awful sort of spear carriers looking like they don't know what they're doing. Um, and they were singing. We um, hired a cruise liner and sailed it across the med, and they were singing and shooting their Kalashnikovs. And the film really worked, and then people really liked it and then I got a call from someone claiming to be the artistic director at the Metropolitan Opera in New York and I genuinely thought it was a friend who's taking the piss out of me but it turned out it really was and again John Adams the same composer there was an opera called Dr Atomic about the Manhattan Project and the developing the first nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and um and so I directed that at, at the Met. And again, it's the same 
the same principle in that, you know, you have the pyramids and everybody, as long as you understand what everybody has to do and you communicate that to them very clearly. And the kind of performances that I knew I wanted weren't these sort of operatic performances people doing sort of pretend walking Mm -hmm. there was one singer actually who sort of puffed his chest out and then did walking like they used to do on the bill or those police (laughs) you know sort of moving the top of his body around and and I couldn't get him so in the end I just had to nail him to the floor and not let him move at all but most of the singers really delighted to be asked to do more authentic acting Mm -hmm. and um, more subtle Mm -hmm. you know um so it was it was terrifying the first time uh-huh. because I really was I really didn't know uh-huh. you know I, I just had to look at the at the libretto mm-hmm. with the the music and see where a bit finished and they'd go where do you want to start from and I'd find a bit where there wasn't any singing and I'd go we'll start at bar 46 big number whatever it is and and then they would do it and I think well obviously that was the right thing to say but what I couldn't say was I don't know (laughs) how do you overcome that like that you know we all get obviously nervous when we're doing something new or something different but I mean just you know talking with you already you know you've done many firsts you know you've changed you've moved you know from one thing to the next how do you manage that I guess like you say you've just got to not fake it but you kind of just going confident you have to work really hard and actually you know there's a lot of graft involved and and there's no way around that so for example with the opera I mean, I did take several months off and I went to see lots of things because one of the, you know, with the film, if you're in the desert, you go to the desert and you shoot something there and then you're in on the sea and then you're in someone's bedroom and, and you've, it's naturalism works really well on mm-hmm. film because you can always choose it. In opera or on a stage, you have this box and everything has to happen there. The desert, the sea, the bedroom, and somehow you have to be able to move between one and the other in a fluid way. You've got a scene where you've got 80 people on stage and then there's a, you know, an aria with one person. How do you get those people off? And how do you transform the stage to have the, the one person then? And when you you know in a way you learn more by seeing things that don't work where you go oh right they're all going off left and now some other people are coming on the right and that feels very clunky Mm. so it's like I I do work really hard so it's all a kind of preparation really I think that being tenacious is almost more important than any other quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really know what talent is. It must be there, mustn't it, you know? And, and that partly comes with a kind of passion and wanting to tell a story. Mm-hmm. But not giving up and really preparing. And if you're not prepared, you'll fuck up. Oh, that just put dread in me. Sometimes when I am nervous, I avoid preparing... Yeah, and I've caught myself out on that and it's not something I do anymore but I would say yeah or I prepare everything else but the, the 10% that I'm worried about I kind of ignore yeah. and actually it doesn't yeah. work like you said you have to immerse yourself you have to throw yourself in and have to be completely prepared and when it does fuck up you're yeah. ready because yeah. you just find plan B yeah. as opposed yeah. to just scrambling yeah. around and actually things always happen that yeah. you're not prepared yeah. for always 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 okay so I'm really curious, and I, you know, I mentioned it in the intro, but could you talk about what was your 
career journey to this point in time? Like, how did you arrive at being all these amazing directors of film, opera, documentary? You know, I was born in 1950. I mean, the idea was that you got married. Mm -hmm. And so there would be a little interim period between leaving school and getting married where people would be a secretary or a teacher, those were acceptable things, and then you would get married and then that was it. But I didn't want to get married. And I wanted to be an artist, and even though I wasn't quite sure what that was. Um, and so I sort of wandered around looking for artists mm -hmm. in Buenos Aires by myself, and, and then I found some. And they were uh, there was a play that they were in called Liberty and Other Intoxications, which was which I then got a part in, mm -hmm. and I then fell madly in love with um, the most unsuitable bloke I could find on the planet, and <laughs> ran off with him, and ended up um, not ended up, but you know a year or so later, you know, it's eighteen, mm -hmm. um, pregnant by myself in Barcelona. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock, really. <laughs> and a journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so I then really spent a good sort of ten, fifteen years. You know, I was a single mother. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do anything because I'd been brought up to get married. And I was still quite determined not to do that. Mm -hmm. And then by the time my son was sort of fourteen, fifteen, mm -hmm. I was still in my early 30s and I thought you know and I, I was a youth worker for a bit I got this job which I was also because I didn't go to university I didn't go to film school nothing mm -hmm. you know um, but I did I re always read a lot mm -hmm. I was kind of you know ready to do something mm -hmm. and I you know worked with a group of girls and we did a play and then they were said they were bored with that so I said well let's make a film for Channel 4 and and we and we made this film and then it was completely crazy, but somebody at Channel 4 saw it, uh -huh. and then suddenly I was a director without ever having assisted anybody or knowing anything. Uh -huh. um, so it was, yeah, it was uh, quite... And then and then I had to sort of make it up as, uh -huh. as I went along. Well, as I say, I worked very hard, and I think the thing about not going to film school uh -huh. is that you don't have a group of peers, uh -huh. you know, you don't really know how the system works or anything, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it kind of... Even now, people go, oh, you work very differently to everyone else, and I'm thinking, shit, what does everybody else do that I'm not doing? I would love to know, you know. But... Um, it's you know it kind of took off and I was I I thought this has everything that I love because I don't really like routines yeah. so there's a bit when you're whatever film it is where you're by yourself and you're thinking about what it is you want to do and and you're kind of preparing and trying to come up with the ideas and then there's the shoot which or you know, once you're actually directing the production of an opera or, or even the, where you're really busy and it's very gregarious and then it goes right back down again to it's just you and an editor mm -hmm. putting the, the film together, you know. And so I really like the kind of ebb and the flow of it and that it's always different. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of really suited me and I thought this is true love and that's what I want to do. It's amazing. I just... Yeah. What was the first film that you made? Well, the film? very first yeah. film is the film that I'm always very reluctant to even mention. 
<laughs> we don't have to talk about it if you prefer not to. Well, no, it was the film with this group of girls in, in Oxford and, uh, yeah, we, we didn't even know that we were supposed to do different shots or anything, you know. And um, and so I, I borrowed some equipment. I did a two-day course at the Oxford Filmmakers Workshop, which somehow prepared me for making this film. <laughs> and it was the little half-hour... Actually, when I think about it, of course, it's very similar to everything I've done because it was a group of girls who never acted before who were kind of very preoccupied with class. Mm-hmm. And so race and class are the things that always kind of, you know, I, I'm kind of obsessed with and they somehow feed into just about everything mm-hmm. I do. Kind of in a nutshell, what do you... I know we've kind of covered this off already, mm-hmm. but what skills do you need to direct? I think you need to know how you want to tell a story and then you need to be able to communicate that to other people unless you're going to make something completely on your own. Mm. Okay. So in terms of like new ideas and getting projects off the ground, one, where does the kind of idea and concept start and then how do you get funding or how do you mm. approach people to, to, get, to make it, put it into the world? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing in terms of, say advice for younger filmmakers if you don't do anything nothing is ever going to happen so you have to keep putting yourself and your ideas out there sometimes you have an idea and you go to get funding and you just happen to have your finger on the pulse at the right time and somebody says yes so if if you've got an idea and you don't know anybody or whatever then you know say if it's a tv idea look at the credits at the end of of whatever it is that you like if it's a comedy or a drama or a documentary see which of the production companies you know they mention right at the end a name will come up you know and you go that would be maybe where you might send that idea and you need to get to know a a production company because we're all freelance really so if you're doing something you get a production company and they will generally manage the whole production for you and get the money and so on you know so you need luck actually mm-hmm. and you need to be very tenacious and you know saying to you earlier that I like football there's a sort of football analogy which is that the striker has to keep making the run and then sometimes the cross comes in and you can score but they're probably that striker's made that run 15 times and the ball doesn't come you know so you have to keep trying and you can't just have one idea that you're trying to get off the ground because you've in my experience anyway it's just keeping different balls in the air you know because even for me now I've been around a long time sometimes I'm hot and sometimes I'm not mm-hmm. you know and some, sometimes I'm doing something and I just go oh Penny Walcott she's fantastic let's do that and then other times I'm like oh no you know that you get another group of people in and obviously they're not interested in what I'm doing, yeah. you know. So what advice would you give to someone wanting to be a TV director or a film director? Yeah. Well, I think if going to film school is a good idea if you can do it, but in order to go to film school, you need to make a film. And the advantage of that, even though it's not what I did, is that you have some connections with the industry by the end of your course. You have some peers that you can work with. You're not quite as isolated as I was. So I think that is a way, and I wouldn't necessarily... I don't think as an undergraduate degree doing media or anything like that really... 
I, I think it's much better to do other things actually because it makes you a more interesting person. You know, I always choose assistants who've done something else if they've been to uni. But the best thing you can do is actually to make a film. And nowadays it's very easy to do because most of us have got some kind of phone and the films are very good quality. You can download editing programs from the internet and you can teach yourself how to edit um, the film that you shoot. So I would say if you've got other friends who are interested, get them to be in it. You make something and you learn from your mistakes. Probably the first thing you make won't be the most brilliant thing ever. Um, but that's how you learn. So I think just, you know, shoot something, edit it, look at it. You know, every single person that I know who's got it into their heads that they want to direct films, who've persevered, are all doing it. Great. And so what about if you wanted to be an opera director, saying you've come at this kind of really from stage left? Yeah. I, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> I just did it in such a weird way that I don't know anybody actually in that world. They all seem to come from really different backgrounds, much more sophisticated and cultured and they can read music and they seem to know a lot of things that I don't know. So um, for me, to start off directing opera at the Met is insane and I could never explain how that happened really. I guess it goes back to you saying about just keep working, keep doing those things, you know, look for interesting projects and make ideas and then the connections may say pop into your lap. Absolutely, yeah. It's sort of, it's like keep watering the soil really. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's not really a choice, you know, I do it whether I get paid for it or not, you know, it's what I love to do. And and if you have a choice, probably there are better ways of living your life than... But it is really fun, though. I mean, I, you know, I, I just think we're so lucky to have something that, that we love to do and that you can potentially earn a living from. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can tell me um, a challenge that you faced in your career and how you've overcome it. I had two really bad experiences, actually. And in one of them, I made the mistake of... Um, not knowing very much myself and then thinking that I had to give opportunities to other people who didn't know anything either and actually that wasn't right Mm -hmm. and I always think you should surround yourself with people who are really good at what they do Um, so that was something that I had to learn that actually soldiering on is not always the right thing and sort of thinking, well, I've got to keep going because I've made this decision, both if you miscast somebody or you take somebody on who turns out to be a nightmare or actually not up to the job or can't deal with stress, you have to sack them. And that is a hard thing, you know, because we don't like to think of ourselves as being ruthless, but I think you have to really. So that thing about actually going, here's a problem, and I have to either say to this person, and usually if you do it quickly, everybody understands it's not working. If you carry on, you're going to end up hating them, they're going to hate Mm. you, and nothing works. So I think if you know that it's not working with someone either with an actor or with somebody in the crew. I think you have to move really swiftly and decisively and stop it. So that's 
not something that as women we're particularly good at doing mm. and it doesn't mean that I go <laughs> sacking people left <laughs> right and center but it's something I did have to learn you know that you do need to you need to be able to make a decision and just carrying on and on and on you know and something isn't working is is a really bad idea mm. that's one thing and then the other is hasn't happened for a long time because I don't let it happen but I also had an experience of somebody who was actually was a woman um, dealt with stress by becoming really unpleasant Mm. and I shouldn't have put up with it Um, and I would never do that again so I think again don't let yourself be pushed around okay so how do you nurture your creativity where do you go what do you do I mean I love Going, you know, I do go to concerts and I, I enjoy that, but I also, you know, enjoy going to football matches and and I have a very eclectic group of friends across all kinds of ages and ethnicities. So I've really close friends who are in their twenties and I'm in my sixties. So I think one of the things is staying really open. Mm-hmm. I just find the world just completely fascinating and everything around is kind of inspiring in a way and um, and then you've discovered something and then you want to tell a story about it great so you've got your exhibition fantastic cities opening yeah. on the 16th of november and i'm pretty sure you're all consumed in finishing the work for that yeah. but have you got anything else in the pipeline that's coming up in the coming months yeah well I'm the this, the week of the getting into the art gallery I start prep on Ackley Bridge which I'm doing one more block of so I'm doing the first two again mm-hmm. and uh, and I love doing that I love working with those young people and doing something that is genuinely diverse that comes into people's houses that has a lot of Muslims in it they're not paedophiles or terrorists which is generally the way people are portrayed so I'm very happy to do that and then I have this opera with Wayne Shorter and Esperanza Spalding. And then uh, some of the Birmingham guys and I are working on a drama about three women who become drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> um, I, you know, we're trying to see if we can get that off the okay. ground. And yeah, I've got a few other ideas that I've been trying to get off the ground for years. So sometimes you leave things to one side, but I've got an idea about a rapper and a soprano that I've been attempting to make for about eight years now and I will make it but I haven't managed to get anybody to agree to it yet but you know I'm not going to give up on it. Penny you're relentless. (laughs) (laughs) Even in the midst of preparing for a solo exhibition you're like got this long list that you're going on to it's just incredible I mean you're so bloody amazing. No. Yes. All right. So we're coming to the end. So um, something I ask everyone at the end of the episode is, is there a role uh, or a career in the creative industries you know little about and you'd like to know more about? And also um, another woman in the creative industries that you'd like to hear on the podcast? Well, I would, I'd love to know more about curating exhibitions. And Emma Ridgway, who's the chief programmer at Modern Art Oxford, and I've been very intrigued about how she's sort of curating me in a way, and I don't really understand what it is that she does, so I'd love to hear from her about her job. And um, in terms of 
Well, I'd love to know about conducting. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear conduct. There are very few women, but there are some. Mm -hmm. And with classical music, it, it's a sort of mysterious role because you might think that they're just standing there waving their arms around, but actually they're really holding the orchestra. And there was this beautiful expression that I heard from Colin Davis, who is a conductor who died couple of years ago and he said it's like holding a bird in your hand and if you hold it too tight you kill it and if you hold it too loose it flies away so I'd love to know more about conducting. Penny it's been so incredible talking to you you are, you really inspire me and I've just yeah I've loved just talking through everything you've done and I know there's so much more but um thank you for coming on greater than 11 it's really fun <laughs> thank you thank you for listening if you enjoyed please write a review on apple podcast as that helps other people find greater than 11 percent and also stay subscribed to keep up to date on the weekly releases. This podcast is made possible by the support of Hub, an insight-led content agency based in London. A huge thank you to the producers, Pat Murray and James Haberson, and to Mary Continenza for the designing the beautiful artwork. <laughs>